0: Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 10th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, still unable to shake off...
1: Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland.
0: (laughs) And this is part two, Frank, of our favorite show of the year, maybe our favorite show of the year, the Back to School Special. Uh, Wonderful guests talking about the important issues that... Face law professors as they prepare their classes for this semester, uh, our wonderful students as they uh, rejoin the health law adventure that uh, we've so enjoyed, and hopefully a lot of the general listeners who will find uh, these in-depth treatments of the major issues of the year of great interest.
1: Indeed, it's always a favorite of mine as well, Nick.
0: And our next guest is Leo Belatsky, professor of law and health sciences. At Northeastern University, uh, he holds a joint appointment with the School of Law and the Bouvet College of Health Sciences, and he is a great expert in public health. Uh, Leo, a big welcome back! Thank you so much, Nick. And of course, Aaron Fuse Brown, uh, professor of law at the Center for Law, Health, and Society at Georgia State University College of Law, and a well-known Twill voice. Welcome back, Aaron.
2: It's good to be here.
0: So, Leo, what should we be? What should we be focusing
3: on? Uh, as we go back to school? Well, Nick, uh, as you've probably seen, uh, opioid overdose continues to be in the headlines and has actually uh, made its way into uh, the general election campaign. Um, And one of the things that we uh, should be on the lookout for is the uh, fight over uh, the funding of the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, uh, acronym CARA. Um, The act was actually recently signed into law by President Obama actually in uh, July 22nd. And this was one of the sort of uh, flagship pieces of legislation um, to address opioid overdose and has a lot of different components, uh, including uh, expanding drug treatment access, um, uh, providing new guidelines for opioid prescribing, which is seen as one of the kind of uh, if not the root, the proximate causes of the current crisis, um, has provisions for uh, law enforcement grants and creating uh, task forces to uh, sort of coordinate the response to opioid overdose uh, uh, between uh, various sectors, among various sectors the uh during the legislative process the uh uh, the funding provisions in this legislation were totally stripped out and so although it was signed into law it's uh uh, you know essentially an unfunded mandate until uh the appropriations uh if and when the appropriations are actually uh, uh passed for this for this legislation so um in a way uh there was a lot of excitement about this uh, this legislation, but it, the excitement has definitely been dampened by the fact that there is not um, there is not funding to implement uh, most of the programs, and and this is uh, in the context of the um, overall kind of continued um, uh, struggle against this nationwide crisis, because as we've seen uh, the um, the rates of overdose, the, both the prevalence and the incidence, have continued to rise. And um, it, it feels like as we kind of grapple for solutions, there there are new emergent or reemergent problems that that have come up, uh, such as, for example, the introduction of fentanyl into the uh, illicit drug supply. So fentanyl is a is a synthetic opioid which is a lot more powerful than um, any of the prescription drugs, um, as well as heroin. heroin. Heroin is supposedly over 100 times more potent than than, uh, opium itself. So um, as we clamp down on heroin and prescription drugs, it seems like the clandestine production of fentanyl is ramping up just because you get more kind of bang for your buck, uh, if you will, uh, as far as... uh, uh, production and sale goes on the black market. And so that introduces new challenges to both enforcement and public health prevention. So um, this is, uh, unfortunately, feels like a uncontained crisis at this point. So this is something definitely to keep an eye on.
0: What do you think the odds of funding the uh, legislation are, Leah?
3: With our current sort of you know, political gridlock. I'm not sure. I mean, we. I'm sure you've had this discussion about Zika on the show. Um, that seems to be a similar situation where we know what should be done, and yet we're not able to um, essentially come to uh, come to the table and uh, agree on on putting our money where our mouth is. Um, And, and, you know, Zika is is certainly in the early stages of being a crisis, and this is in the late stages of being being in a crisis. So um, I, you know, it seems like the opioid crisis is something that is um, kind of bringing people across the aisle together. Um, So I'm hoping that the chances are um, decent, but it, it, I think it, you know, somewhat depends on how the election unfolds. But you know, right now um, we're in recess, so uh, hopefully in the fall um, the funding will be forthcoming.
1: It does seem like this issue has gotten even some play on the level of presidential politics, at least with respect to Hillary Clinton, because I, I think I saw a few months ago that she actually is supporting Joe Manchin's proposal for a penny a pill tax on opioids uh, to sort of fund. Um, a larger, I think it's a ten billion dollar program, um, or at least that would help fund a ten billion dollar program to increase funding for the Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant. So it does seem as though there is uh, some momentum there and some recognition of just how important this issue is. There
3: certainly is, Frank. I mean, it's hard to or, uh, this issue is hard to ignore. There was a, a survey released recently that um, you know half of Americans, uh, adult Americans, know someone with an opioid abuse problem uh, or someone who has overdose. So that's You know, from a political kind of standpoint, it would be it would be silly for the candidates to ignore this issue, even just, you know, for practical purposes. But it certainly is a public health emergency. Um, You know, it's funny. I've worked on overdose uh, and, and opioid abuse issues for a while. And one thing that strikes me that is something that connects to a lot of the issues that, this podcast addresses is the fact that, in a way, it doesn't seem like focusing on block grants or piecemeal funding for the uh, drug treatment sector is even essential. Because uh, you know, if you if you get down to it. Drug treatment should be, and the ACA reaffirms this, should be just you know part and parcel of, of healthcare services that are provided to people. And we have in this country a system, uh, you know, system certainly has its challenges, but we have a system for funding or for paying for healthcare through either uh, Medicare, Medicaid, or through private insurance. The problem is, is that there's so much. Stigma and misunderstanding of drug treatment and what constitutes evidence-based care that the system for that the system that we have for paying for uh, healthcare services um, is really misaligned with. Uh, provision of evidence-based drug treatment. So, for example, um, Casa Colombia, which is a kind of an addiction think tank in New York, recently did a report on uh, parity provisions in uh, health plans. And you know, the ACA requires that there's parity in mental health and and behavioral health services uh, within uh, you know ACA post-ACA insurance environment and they found that um, half of the plans out there have some deficiency in the way that they address parity for behavioral health, so drug treatment services and something like a Third or over, uh, I think thirty-one percent um, have a serious deficiency or basically non-compliance. And the fact that you know we're several years into the implementation of the ACA, and that an independent think tank has to do this work to you know go over the um, health plans that are available on exchanges and suss out which plans are non-compliant, and the fact that you know there's not some kind of process uh, to either you know from the, on the federal level to um, check for compliance either before the um, the plan is approved or to go back and make sure that there's compliance uh, after the fact uh, seems to be you know a missing opportunity here we have a major public health crisis um, and The health plans are basically deficient in a way that they cover essential services to people who are affected.
0: So when you look at some of the issues that we've covered this year, some of them uh, with your great help from Flint to Glocks against Docs to Zika the opiate uh, issues, are there some themes here um, or emerging themes that you think should be stressed when we're talking about public health issues with our students or giving them pointers as to things to watch for in the future?
3: As you know, one of the things that I always come back to is the law on the books versus law on the streets. And, um, you know, the, the policy implementation process, the policy translation process is something that is very real in this in this realm and I think in all realms so you know things that should be based on a policy provisions often um, when you look at their implementation they' they're just um, there are a lot of gaps um, and something that is, always it always kind of surprises me how pervasive that gap is and i think that similarly there's a major gap between what the evidence says and what the policy tries to do so we're you know supposedly in the age of evidence driven policy but there there are so many factors that go into making laws and making regulations and making institutional policies that the evidence is oftentimes left by the wayside, and so I think harmonizing policy with evidence, and also harmonizing policy with its implementation, are uh, you know those two areas are something that needs a lot of help. And, and students, I hope we can inspire students to apply their brains and apply their passion to those uh, to those areas.
1: So, thanks so much, Leo. That was really a terrific rundown of some very important developments in the uh, opioid abuse. Epi- pandemic and many of the problems that that's been leading to I'd now like us to turn to uh, Aaron Fuse Brown uh, who is returning we've had a great conversation with Aaron on a number of topics um including hospital rate regulation and pricing today though we're going to be looking at a different issue uh in terms of some very recent developments in fraud and abuse so Aaron could you uh, describe some of the issues there
2: thanks frank yeah i have a couple of items that i would say should be added to the health care Syllabus that are sort of new and up and coming this year. The first is the United Health Services Company versus Escobar Supreme Court case that was decided this summer, earlier in June. Um, and this is a you know a big deal to those who practice health law and who represent uh, those you know providers and do false claims act litigation because it was you know a, a big false claims act litigation decision by the Supreme Court. So just in terms of the Escobar case, there you know it, it we don't always see these big false claims act Cases, especially healthcare false claims Act cases, get all the way to the Supreme Court, um, and what the case was about was whether the implied false certification theory can be a basis of liability under the False Claims Act. Now, the False Claims Act, of course, is a really broad federal statute that protects the government and the taxpayer from fraudulent payments under government programs, but it and of course applies beyond healthcare programs. But it really matters in the healthcare context because it's a powerful enforcement vehicle for Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, providers, and that's pretty much every provider in this country. Uh, and there are, you know, these very large penalties, there are civil and criminal penalties, but the civil penalties are, are really large, they're per claim, and they're multiplied three times in a provision called treble damages, which is this really punitive provision that is designed to make it very painful when um someone defrauds the federal government. And so as a result, you know, providers very much care about the False Claims Act, and as a result, their lawyers very much care about the False Claims Act, and everyone was watching the Escobar case very closely. Um, So the facts of the Escobar case were really tragic. Uh, It involved a teenage girl named Yarushka Rivera, who was on Medicaid and she received mental health service services at a Massachusetts clinic, um, and then she had a very bad adverse reaction to her medication. Um, She had seizures, and she ultimately died from her medications. And then her parents, instead of bringing a negligence or a malpractice suit, actually brought a whistleblower suit under the False Claims Act's key tam provisions. And basically said, uh, the medical providers that you know gave our daughter her treatment and her medication involved in her care were unlicensed and unsupervised in violation of Medicaid and state regulations and state requirements. So then the question is, well, is that a false claim? When these providers billed Medicaid for her services, did they submit a false claim because they impliedly certified that they had complied with all the relevant regulatory requirements, including proper licensure and supervision of all their providers? Um, So that is what brought this case, you know, into court. And the reason it reached the Supreme Court is that there was a circuit split. Um, different circuits had re- had different theories of when you can assert this implied certification theory as a basis for false claims act liability. So the idea of implied certification is that when a party bills the government um, and does does this billing party does the provider in this case implicitly certify or attest that it has complied with all the applicable statutory, regulatory, or contractual legal requirements just in the act of submit sending its bill to the to the government payer and in. In this case, um, even if the Medicaid claim form did not have an explicit, you know, check the box or a test that the provider complied with licensing and supervision requirements, does the fact that the clinic didn't comply with these sort of fundamental requirements make the act of billing Medicaid false in the sense that these were fraudulent or false claims uh, for services that they should never have been paid for? Uh, again, there was a circuit split. The Seventh Circuit had never accepted this implied certification theory. Others, like the Second of the D.C. Circuit had a, had adopted this theory. Uh, different versions of this theory were floating around. So, of course, the Supreme Court then had to step in to, to clarify whether or not implied false certification is a thing, and then if it is a thing, what version of this thing exists um, for you know for the False Claims Act. So, the punchline is the holding was the Supreme Court said yes, the implied false certification theory. Is a thing. It can, in some circumstances, provide the basis for false claims act liability. So that's a pretty big deal. So the answer is yes, you can use this theory. Um, but then the Supreme Court went on to say, but only in circum- certain circumstances. So what are these circumstances? Well, first, when the claim the claim has to not merely request payment, but also make specific representations about the goods and services provided. So it has to provide some detail about the nature of the services and make representations. And these have to be specific. The second requirement is that the failure to disclose noncompliance has to be material, um, such that it makes those representations misleading half-truths. So if you the you know, these it has to be not just sort of a technical noncompliance, but one that would be material to the government's decision of whether to pay the claim. Um, And the courts stress that this second test of materiality uh, should be fairly demanding. Um, Again, not just sort of technical things, but would actually persuade the government not not to pay the claim in this case. Um, so what, what does this all mean? Who won? Um, the significance about this you know, is being debated, and I think we frankly won't know until we see a lot more litigation under this new articulation of this theory. Um, we do know that it is a, we have shifted from sort of some uncertainty to a little more certainty, but also more murkiness. The courts, uh, some of the lower court circuit tests for implied certification were more of a formalistic bright line rule. But now we have this fact-specific materiality, uh, context-driven analysis, which frankly seems like something that only can be fleshed out, you know, in litigation itself. It has to be, you know, uh, it's so fact-specific that we're probably going to need a lot more litigation just to see what um, types of factors are going to be material to decisions to pay versus not. Um, so we're not going to see less litigation as a result of this decision. We'll probably see more. Um, the court also tried to brush aside concerns that this fact-specific analysis is just gonna open the floodgates, that we're gonna see all sorts of key TAM litigants um, running to court to try to assert some frivolous claims, maybe some meritorious, just to test the limits of this notion of materiality. Um, and we you know I guess it just remains to be seen. So, this requirement of materiality is so fact-specific, I think we will see a lot of litigants maybe not being able to persuade a court to dispose of the issue. A motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment phase, but it probably will have to go further than that. Um, so it creates a lot of work for attorneys. It creates a lot of work for the government, and um, which I guess is good for our students. It's probably not so so good for the providers that they represent um, when they go out to practice. But it is um, a pretty big development in the law, and it's one that has the the legal uh, health law bar, you know, sort of all abuzz trying to figure out what it, what exactly this is going to mean for their clients. Yeah.
0: As I noticed, the, um, the, the attempt to try and cabin this uh in Justice Thomas's opinion, uh, uh, kind of reminded me of when the the federal court said, "Wait a minute, M. Tyler is not a general purpose malpractice claim, folks." So here, uh, uh, Justice Thomas says uh, the False Claims Act is not a uh, an all-purpose anti-fraud statute. But as someone who's uh, attuned to practice here, Aaron, the examples that Justice Thomas gave as to you know what could be material as opposed to uh, what wasn't, are those useful? Sort Of examples for the practicing bar, or is this just going to be, as you kind of uh, intimated, a factor intensive bun fight?
2: Yeah, I don't know how useful. He didn't give a lot of really specific um, examples. I mean, he, the examples he gave were things like if the government in the past um, had indicated that this type of non compliance would be relevant to its decision to pay, then that, you know, obviously would be relevant. Um, also, a decision to pay, notwithstanding its awareness of a noncompliance would be relevant. But that's, you know, again, it's going to be, you know, few and far between where we get cases right away where we have sort of a record that shows that the government knew about a noncompliance and then said, well, we don't really care, we'll pay the claim anyway. Um, And so I would imagine that we're going to at least for the, you know, for the short to midterm, have to flesh it all out with additional, you know, facts with new cases that really go and test the limits of what is material to the government's decision to pay. Um, um And, of, you know, of course, the government's attitude is everything's material to our decision to pay. Um, you know, these these requirements are here for a reason. Um, and they are you know, we don't want to pay for 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 case for medical care that is um, essentially not of good quality. And so we're starting like you alluded to, we're starting to see this slide toward, you know, more and more of these these cases getting brought under a false claims act uh, theory, which was kind of unusual in this case. This really was sort of more of a what you would imagine would be a malpractice type of case, and it's being brought here under a false claims act theory.
1: So I had just had two little comments, uh, and please feel free to uh, correct me, contradict me, Aaron, because I, I know that I am not uh, I'm not totally up on the latest in false claims jurisprudence. But it just reminds me of some larger themes in health law in terms of themes of various. Aspects of policy being at war with themselves. One here that just comes to mind is: it seems as though at least a lot of what I read in the disruptive technocratic uh, slash technocratic health literature emphasizes the need to try new combinations of healthcare provision, new types of professionals, urging people to practice at the top of their license, etc. Um, all of which may well be skirting the boundaries of the types of qualifications that are suddenly or are very clearly put uh, under the microscope uh, by this decision. The other concern, I guess, or just thought that pops into my mind when this case is discussed is, to what extent does the False Claims Act become a bit of a backdoor cost containment measure? Is that a good health policy or is that a really inefficient way to achieve this sort of cost containment? And my mind's totally open on that, because on the one hand, I mean, I realize that, you know, ideally you'd want to have um, a, a much more... Um, Direct way of dealing with these types of issues, but on the other hand, I often see, you know, legal costs and the costs of the legal system exaggerated in various contexts. So, <laughs> just just a few, just spitballing about the about the uh, the decision.
2: Yeah, Frank. Though those are really good points, and I think that it's it's unclear right now what what the decision is going to do to that debate about whether the False Claims Act is sort of overbroad and overburdensome and, you know, and everything that gets swept in under the False Claims Act, you know, Stark Law, you know, any kickback, and there's a lot of effort right now to rethink whether we should have a Stark Law um, because of its, you know, um, its burden on providers. And I think there's that notion of, like, well, you certainly want to be able to go after the fraud and the waste in the system. Like, that is, you know, bipartisan, that it, everyone likes to beat the drum of, let's go after the bad guys, and, and you know, we don't want the fraudsters building the American taxpayer out of our hard earned, you know, our tax money paying for our Medicare and Medicaid programs. So that's definitely true. And I don't know if that's ever going to go away, if anything, that the emphasis on um, clawing back fraud um, out of the system seems to be politically more and more popular. But the, I think what you're alluding to is a little more nuanced, which is, well, what about sort of innovation? What about, um, you know, these sorts of things that might technically uh, start to look like non-compliance or screw the edge or raise the specter of noncompliance, does that sort of put providers and others into a defensive crouch where they don't want to um, they don't want to be caught up in a false claims act investigation, especially with the Bipartisan Budget Act's doubling of the FCA, the False Claims Act statutory penalties. Um, you know, the the it's it's sort of bet the company kind of ruinous liability here. So if does that mean that innovation will be somewhat cabined because providers are going to be risk averse. Um, and then moreover, if we're spending all of this money investigating, defending, and complying with all of these myriad technical regulatory and statutory requirements, um, some of which are are good, and they should be there, but they also create this sort of expense, right, the the sort of compliance industrial complex. And so um, that, in some ways, may eat up some of the savings we're we're getting back from deterring fraud by having to make providers spend so much money on their law firms to uh, make sure that they're not, you know, running afoul of the the various ways they could get in trouble under the False Claims Act.
0: Let me ask a specific question. We're, what, just uh, a month away, I guess, from the the one-year birthday of the Yates Memo. Is that something to teach in the class, or is it uh, sort of an advanced fraud and abuse topic?
2: That's a good question. I don't actually teach the Yates Memo, but it is um, one of those things that I think might be worth mentioning. The the eighth memo, of course, is the the view that not only are we going to go after the provider, the sort of institutional actors, but also we will not, the government will not engage in sort of settlement negotiations or other types of ways to resolve cases unless they're given sort of the actual individual wrongdoers um, and, and really making the corporate executives more accountable for false claims act liability and other compliance problems. Um, and I think that that is definitely, it's. it creates a whole host of strategic concerns, I would imagine, for the providers um, in terms of the kinds of advice they give to their clients and who they're representing and they're, how they're not really representing the executives, um, but really the interests of the executives and the interests of the organization are not aligned at all um, under the, the Yates memo. And so does that create, a whole, you know, all sorts of other um, problems for those who might be advising these healthcare clients. So I typically reserve that. We have the luxury of having an advanced fraud and abuse sort of class here. So, you know, we usually leave that to them. But I think you're right. I think that is worth bringing up, especially as this gets to be a bigger and bigger concern.
3: Insofar as it seems like there may be a movement to, or maybe there isn't, but there's certainly effort to use FCA for... To to maybe as an addendum or an alternative to malpractice litigation, how does that interface with malpractice insurance for providers? I, I'm not I don't I'm not familiar with this area, but it'd be interesting to, to hear.
2: I'm not sure how that's how that works. I mean, this was an unusual case. Usually, your typical false claims act case doesn't involve um, the patient's family, right? As the key TAM whistleblower, it's usually an, a disgruntled employee or someone from the billing office or you know physician who didn't like. The deal they had, and and so they bring some something like a billing or a upcoding type of claim, and so this one was really unusual. And so I think your question's well taken. Like there could be ripple effects um, of this case that we're not seeing right now in terms of you know here was a Supreme Court False Claims Act case that was essentially a malpractice case, and what does that mean? I don't think most malpractice insurance prov- you know policies um, cover False Claims Act violations because they're not malpractice practice. I mean, they're, they're, they're fraud. So, um, you know, those types of, Intentional fraudulent activities typically are not, um, covered by malpractice insurance. But I, you know, I don't know how, um, how to advise going forward if this, if this, is this a signal or is this just a sort of a, an outlier case where it looks like a malpractice case dressed up as a false claims act case? Um, it I guess it'll remain to be seen.
0: I think you can double down on that question as well. Um, when you think about how this would potentially avoid a lot of uh, malpractice uh, reform laws in the states. Uh, if if this was to develop into something like that, um, I mean, we've we've seen a little bit, perhaps, uh, moving us in that area with the worthless services uh, type theories uh, in, in these in fraud and abuse cases. But uh, that would be a really interesting
2: area if that develops. Yeah, it would be interesting to see whether or not. Um you know the the family here. If they get a portion, you know, twenty five percent or whatever of the ultimate damage award, that could be way more than they would have ever gotten out of a malpractice suit. You know, and so you're right. This could be an end run around traditional malpractice tort reform type of limits.
0: Well, that was just great. Thank you so much, Leo. Uh, great having you on the show
3: again. Thanks so much for having me back. And Aaron, keep on coming back.
2: All right. Good to be here.
1: So the topic that I'm going to be going over is one that has got a lot of attention in healthcare finance circles over the past few months, and indeed since 2015, and that is the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, or MACRA. And MACRA was passed in April 2015, and so it might seem odd to bring it on to a show in August of uh, 2016, but... There was a notice of proposed rulemaking back in April of this year that has really opened up uh, a lot of conversation about exactly how this would be implemented. And I think that a lot of folks, uh, the health law casebooks don't yet reflect this uh, because it is so new, but it's a pretty important change to how uh, physicians are being compensated and how other sort of payment models are being developed. So. This might be a good time to sort of go over its basics and uh, introduce those and then set up maybe later conversations on the pod about it. So, to begin, essentially what MACRA does is it's a replacement for the sustainable growth rate. For years, uh, the physicians were battling to uh, sort of delay certain cuts to their compensation and this became sort of this dramatic high-stakes brinksmanship, often each summer. And everybody knew that something had to be changed. And even in our hyperpartisan partisan environment, um, there was legislation to change this. And so that led to the passage of MACRA. What MACRA does is it sets up a either uh, the physicians who are sort of uh, being paid pursuant to this either must join a merit-based incentive system, the MIPS, um, or can join alper- alternative payment systems um and essentially the bottom line for the MIPS is those are programs that combine parts of three of the former quality-based payment programs, which uh sort of rate doctors and give them scores based on their quality of care, resource use, clinical practice improvement, and meaningful use of EHR. So, you know, both both you and I and I have, you know, gone over a lot the meaningful use program, electronic health records, et cetera. And there were continual lobbying for delays at uh, each of the stages of meaningful use, stages one, two, and three. Now stage three does get delayed and sort of gets uh, streamed into this larger perspective on how well doctors are doing. Essentially, the MIPS program, if a physician's MIPS score is above 50, and uh, I won't get into it on in this podcast, but we'll link to some resources that get into how the score will be uh, calculated, or at least the parts of the score that are going to matter, if their score is above 50, their pay would be adjusted upwards. Um, but if their score is below 50, then the pay is docked. And so ultimately, by 2022, you could get variations of up, ni- of plus or minus 9%. Um, again, kind of hard to explain often, but there are some good graphics out there, and I'll try to link to some of those as well. Now, the alternative payment systems; um, those are qualified uh, sort of entities or organizations like accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, and bundled payment models. And those can pay lump sum incentive payments to healthcare providers in 2019. And these in general are, you know, these value based payment models and they're trying to incentivize both the hospitals and providers to improve quality and improve outcomes while containing costs or cutting costs even. And so this is really an effort to Sort of square the circle of healthcare reform and healthcare financing in terms of, you know, for so long under fee for service we've been encouraging um, uh, piecework and maximized piecework and maximizing rates, and this is something that's you know coming at it from a more uh, population health perspective. The interesting thing to note about each of these, just from the outset, is that whether if you're looking at the MIPS, you have the physicians essentially uh, accepting risk from 2019 onwards of being paid less in exchange for the potential benefit of being paid more with respect to the alternative payment systems those are systems these alternative payment models are ones where essentially the risk is on the whole. And this has led to commentary from some folks, I mean, like Fosad, Farsad Mastashari and others, that, you know, you're going to see a lot of emphasis on um, physicians who are trying to get out of small group practices because they just, either because the technology might be too difficult to implement or because, you know, risk is overall better spread in a larger group than a smaller one. So, This could be a very important incentive to reshaping the delivery system. And again, that's such an important issue because we've often heard so many critiques of the Affordable Care Act along the lines of, oh, is this really going to be cutting costs? Is this really going to change and improve the way healthcare is delivered, or is it simply expanding access? And this is an area where MACRA is really pushing us toward this changing uh, delivery system. Now, in thinking about um, MACRA and thinking about how physicians are going to have to start choosing in 2018, 2019 about whether to go to MIPS or the um, APMs, essentially what you see with the MIPS, to get into a little bit more detail with those, is that they're adjusting these traditional fee-for-service payments upward or downward based on a new reporting program. And the measurement categories for this reporting program uh, are clinical quality at 30%, meaningful use of EHRs at 25%, resource use at 30%, and practice improvement at 15%. Now, if you look at the alternative payment models, we talked about risk there, you know, in terms of uh, the overall effect of those, and essentially these are going to be qualified if they involve both upside and downside financial risk or for patient-centered medical homes if they can improve quality with decreasing or stable costs or reduce costs with increasing or stable quality. So that, again, raises some very interesting issues, you know, at the core of the triple aim literature, you know, pioneered by Don Berwick and you know, looked at by others in terms of, you know, do we want a healthcare system that is going to be, say, just having stable quality but decreasing cost, you know, or are we going to try to be pushing for increasing quality with uh, stable costs? Very important value judgments are going to be coming into play uh, with all of this. Now, getting a little bit deeper into the MIPS, um, the physician quality reporting system, the value-based modifier, the Medicare EHR incentive program, all going into being streamlined. Um, those are no longer going to exist as standalone programs starting in 2019. And the infrastructure is been going to be set up in 2017. So that's a really important set of transitions that we're going to be having over time. And the scoring system is going to be you know, based on each of these systems. Um, there's going to be, in terms of clinical practice improvement activities, A real emphasis on population management, care coordination, beneficiary engagement, and patient safety. And, you know, how these things all get, uh, sort of specified. Um, how they're sort of translated into quantitative indicators is going to be such an important and interesting area of research and development in health policy over the next few years. I mean, I'm particularly thinking, you know, in terms of beneficiary engagement, part of that is the uh, transmit, download, and view, For certainly. You know, that's going to be part of the issue in terms of how you use electronic health records and how you engage uh patients to be part of their care. And one of the things that was really interesting that I'll link to at the show notes is you know, there was a discussion by the chair of MedPAC at one of the health affairs uh policy briefings for journalists on Macra, um, where he essentially was mooting the idea of not merely incentivizing the systems that are involved in ACOs, the large hospitals or, or PCMHs, and not merely incentivizing the, the providers but going all the way to incentivizing patients themselves and, you know, if we manage to see certain forms of delivery systems where, say, all this stuff we've been talking about as health tech guys or health tech people about um, uh, the issues of um, quantified self, personal self-management, uh, self-measuring uh, by uh, apps and other things, I mean, clearly all of that is set to be a larger part of the healthcare system uh, in any of these models, but particularly if some of those more daring ideas about incentivizing people to take uh, responsibility or to take further participation in their own health care um, as those, those are going to be rolled out or potentially um, looked at in pilot programs. Now, thinking also about these clinical practice activities, the key question for a lot of them is how are they going to be reported or tracked? Um, we've seen literature from uh, Ja and others on the need to have outcome, patient-reported outcome measures Um, But when we look at, for example, the measurement and tracking of items like care coordination, beneficiary engagement, patient safety, et cetera, um, are these going to fit very well into existing tracking or reporting mechanisms? Or are they going to create new reporting mechanisms and tracking responsibilities? That's going to be a really tough issue. Um, We also see, in terms of questions about patient-centered medical homes, you know, what's going to be the role of existing ones? What's going to be the role of newer ones, ones led by payers or states? That's going to be very important, too. Um, The final thing that I wanted to know about the MIPS before getting into a little bit on the alternative payment models is that... These MIPS adjustments must be budget neutral. Okay, so that's really important to of When there are winners, there also have to be losers. And one of the things we're going to have to watch really closely, and this was part of the American Hospital Association comments here, is what happens if we start seeing the losers in the system primarily in areas that are – if we see losers, uh, people losing uh, funding in areas where there are a lot of health disparities or serving sort of poor or underserved populations. There's been some push for socioeconomic adjustments. Um, and that certainly is going to be, there's going to be more pressure there over time. Now, just very quickly to talk about the other alternative, the alternative payment models. Um, these are new approaches to paying that are trying to incentivize quality and value. They include the CMS Innovation Center model under Section 1115A. They include the Medicare Shared Savings Program that includes, you know, of course, our classic ACOs demonstrations under the care Quality Demonstration Program and other demonstrations under federal law. They include some bundlings, um, and so those are very important aspects, too, in terms of bundling, say, joint care or other things like that. And The most advanced APMs will meet criteria from MACRA where they base payment on quality measures, they require the the use of certified EHR technology, and they bear more than nominal financial risk, or they're a medical home model expanded under the CMMI authority, the Centers for Medicare, uh, the the Innovation Authority. Um, Now, moving on a bit further in terms of how MACRA provides these additional rewards, What's really important is what types of things are, how things are being scored and how essentially the technical advisory committee will work. And so over time, we're going to have to watch to see exactly how model proposals as reviewed by a technical advisory committee do essentially filter into these new alternative payment models and you know could lead to a proliferation of ways of paying for care. So, there's plenty more to talk about here, but, you know, I just wanted to make sure that everyone was aware that, you know, it's not just a matter of thinking about echoes anymore in terms of, um, or uh, bundling in terms of changes to the healthcare financing system. That the clearly MACRA and the noticeable rulemaking as of April are signaling major changes for the ways in which physicians are paid, and this is in turn going to have ripple effects throughout the delivery system. Well, that's just a tour de
0: force, my friend, a tour de force. Um- Clearly, um, as as you were speaking, I was thinking of some of the stuff that's going on in parallel to this, um, uh, the 340B um, uh, drug pricing issues. Uh, You mentioned the joint replacement stuff, the new uh, comprehensive care for joint replacement model. um, And there's been some activity uh, already this month uh, on um, hospital listing and so on with regard to that. The other piece, of course, that comes to mind just thinking a little bit further into the future is uh, uh medicare is always the uh the canary here for the rest of the um the reimbursement mine and um, the the extent to which the private insurers uh, start adopting this very model or uh, very similar models and at what rate they do that is going to be fascinating i suppose uh, if i if i may kick some some uh, some sand into uh, into this uh, briefly <laughs> i I, uh, I i remember when uh, meaningful use began um that almost immediately also what began was an annual dance between providers and cms about the measures and the metrics, and sort of a lot of uh, pushing and pulling uh, with regard to delays and so on. In fact, we we saw that even right up to the end and and, and stage three. So, I, I my two questions: first of all, uh, do you think there's enough stakeholder agreement on MIPs and macro to avoid at least the worst parts of that? And the second question is: in what year? Will I be able to refer to fee-for-service payments only
1: in the historical part of my health law courses? Ah, fantastic questions. I love both of those. And, you know, let me start with the historical question, because that was something that I was just looking over some literature from CMS itself on the goals here in terms of why they're doing this, you know, why they're pushing this so hard. And goal one in terms of Medicare fee for service was that Medicare payments would be tied to 30% of Medicare payments would be tied to quality or value through alternative payment models by the end of 2016 and 50% by the end of 2018. The goal number two was that Medicare fee-for-service payments, that 90% of them would be tied to quality or value um, by the end of 2016. And I'm sorry, (laughs) 85% by the end of 2016, 90% by the end of 2018. So this question of tying is very interesting, right? Because on some level, you know, you you have to wonder why exactly was that type of language chosen and how exactly is the, um, the, the push going to be made? I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting interesting here in terms of the your comparison with the private insurers is we already see uh, a pretty big literature on the degree to which um, hospitals, physicians, others may essentially be overpaid by private insurance. And I, I put overpaid with really big scare quotes around it um, and underpaid by Medicaid and certainly by uncompensated care. And you know that's supposed to be going away, hopefully, um, or more and more of it's supposed to be going away. And I think that essentially with respect to the private insurers, it's going to be really interesting to see how things develop there in terms of are they going to be following these models and how closely can they follow these models and at what point does the system sort of uh, start to, to buckle or to push back. Certainly that's been a dist- uh, on, the, on deck in discussions of healthcare antitrust and consolidation. Um, and the other thing that, you know, is really in the trying to put all this together, and again, I think, you know, the pro- whole process of discussing all these issues in the back to school special have demonstrated to me once again how incredibly interconnected all of these, you know, somewhat disparate practice areas are when you try to get a big picture glimpse of it, are... You know, thinking about trying to implement some of these new models, they seem to be the types of things that would challenge even pretty large corporations. Like if you imagine if you told a large corporation the way that you're going to be paid and the way your business model is going to have to work, you're going to have to totally uh, disrupt that and change that over the next five or six years. I think only very large corporations could do that. And so in that way, you know, it could be that you're going to see this sort of uh um but but I, I I'm I'm afraid that I'm not terribly articulate uh, this afternoon or perhaps for some time as to exactly um, being able to put a, a year or trying to figure out exactly what point um fee for service in general would be gone. So I don't know. I mean I think I may have forgotten though about your first question, Nick. So I'm sorry about that. What was the <laughs> <laughs> any further discussion
0: i was the it was the uh, the toing and fro-ing that we saw in meaningful use um uh, the, which i think uh, uh, my question really is do we have sort of some sort of sense of permanence and purpose here with mips and macro going forward ah yes yes
1: and so that's an area where you know i've been trying to as i was preparing for today i was looking at what the physicians the hospitals and some of the specialty uh, physicians have been saying about this and it's interesting i mean certainly the lobbyists and the folks that are focusing on softening the implementation they certainly have a lot of concerns that i tried to you know bring up On the other hand, um, I don't see a sort of scorched earth attitude or a view like we can't do this. Like, for example, I know this is not necessarily part of the staging of meaningful use discussion, it's more in the statute, but, we both have discussed uh, the accounting of disclosures part of high tech, and that was an area of the statute where you just had flat out lots of hospitals and vendors just saying we're not going to do it, we can't do it, even though it was part of a statute. Um, and and um, to this day, I mean, talking to privacy folks, I don't really think that's been very well implemented uh, almost anywhere. Although maybe I'm I, I may be off, but uh, and please, listeners, let me know if you think it has been implemented somewhere well, and then I can send that out or. or Pod that as a as a model. Um, Here, just looking over the limited amount of literature that I've had a chance to peruse this summer, I'm not seeing that kind of uh, extreme opposition. Um, I think that folks are just pretty happy to get rid of the SGR.
0: And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to all of our guests. We'll have plenty of information about them uh, and the issues that we've discussed in the show notes. Those show notes, of course, are at twill.com. And uh, if you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, you are at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Well, dear listener, another fine group of colleagues joined us today. And good news, part three is just around the corner. Until then, have a legally interesting but healthy few days.